Welcome to the Axe Cast. Today we're going to talk about the Supreme Court of the United States and abortion. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Right. It's good to see you all. I did have a tooth taken out last week, so if I have to stop a few times, we'll just cut. We'll be fine. Uh, today, I want to talk about a couple of things. Some kind of big things have happened. Uh, if you live in the United States or really anywhere in the world, you probably have some interest in what's going on in the United States right now. Um, but there are some pretty large uh, movements that have happened in the legal landscape in the United States. And I want to talk about how we should look at those as a citizen, how we should look at those as a Christ follower. If you're not a Christ follower, or if you disagree uh, with uh, my thoughts on this issue, I want you to know that I respect your thoughts, but I want you to understand why Christ followers feel the way that they do, or rather believe the way that they do about the issue of abortion, which is what's happened lately is there was a case that came out, I believe it was last Friday, uh, where the Supreme Court has said there is not a right in the Constitution of the United States to abortion. And so uh, how, should you, how should you understand sort of the Supreme Court? Uh, why should you care? Uh, let's start with kind of as a citizen. If you're a citizen of the United States, you should care about the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court is one of the pillars of our federal government. And they are an extremely important check and balance on the other two uh, pillars uh, of our government, which are the executive branch, which is the presidency, uh, you know, the military, all the people with guns, <laughs> the people who are able to make things happen. Then you have the legislative branch, which makes the laws for this country and is supposed to be sort of the strongest branch. What's happened over time is that the legislative branch has done less and less and been less and less effective, which is why most people rate Congress very, very low. The executive branch, the president, has done more and more and more and more. You see a lot more executive orders where essentially uh, the president of the United States, uh, regardless of which party the president is from, tends to want to make sort of laws and rules themselves. Uh, and then you have the Supreme Court, which decides whether or not the things that are happening, the things that the, the laws that the legislature passes, the executive orders that the president passes, uh, different things like that, whether or not those things are in compliance with the Constitution of the United States. So as a citizen, you should know that because this affects you directly. And as, as a citizen, you're required to follow the laws of the land. You're required uh, to understand why the things that are going on happen. And as a voter, you're making decisions about who's going to represent you and what kinds of laws they're going to make. So it's, it's really important as a citizen. As a Christ follower, we have a call to obey the government obey the authorities that are over us uh, to the extent that obeying them does not require you to do things that disobey God. You are to obey the government, whether you like it or not. Uh, that's part of the, the role and the call of a believer. It's in scripture. It's very clear. It doesn't matter whether you like who the current president is or who your representative is or what the Supreme Court's saying, unless they are calling you to do something, 
or asking you to do something that is against scripture, you are responsible to obey the government. And so you need to understand what they're doing, how those things are changing, why they're making decisions, because as a Christ follower, you also are a citizen and a voter. Um, Christ first, your family, but your country uh, of citizenship and what's going on there is is right below that in terms of your responsibility to know what's going on. We are not used to having to think very hard about what's going on or to understand with any kind of nuance what is going on. Most people like to get their ideas in tweet size uh, portions. So, you know, whatever it is now, 240 characters or whatever, you know, you, you, you want this very short thing, you know, headline size, right? When I go through the news, oftentimes I'm just looking at the headlines because I can tell what it's going to say based on that. And we're, and we're sort of living in this time where instead of deep thought, we just have sort of a tweet size, you know, belief and position. And that's, you know, something that you could write on a, on a piece of uh, cardboard or poster board and hold up at a, at a protest. That's about how far we think into things. So we like slogans, uh, you know, love is love or my body, my choice or whatever. And we, and our whole philosophy doesn't really go much beyond that. But if you want to actually understand and actually reason, it doesn't work like that. If you're interested in easy answers, you're not likely to often find correct answers. And so kind of before I sort of really get into this, I just kind of want to warn you about that. We're going to have to spend some time to understand what's happened here with the Supreme Court, how that affects you as a citizen, how it affects you as a Christ follower, why it's happened, how the court works, what it does, so that you can actually speak intelligently and reasonably on these issues. And then hopefully, Lord willing, we're going to get into how that would affect the way that you would evangelize, uh, bring the gospel to people who maybe disagree with you or disagree with your position in a loving and respectful way. So it's going to take some time. If you're not ready to sort of work, probably this is a good time to, to end the video and, and not keep going because we're going to be here for a while and you've got to be prepared to work if you want to understand what's happening here. And using your mind is difficult work, but you were given a mind. If you're watching this right now, God has given you a mind. You have plenty of intelligence. Uh, you can you can do this work, but you have to put the work in. So uh, what is the U.S. Supreme Court? What does it do? Well, the Supreme Court is responsible for interpreting laws uh, that have been made by Congress, that have been made by a state legislature, that have been made by somebody, and, and seeing whether or not they violate the Constitution. So let's talk about what the Constitution is. The Constitution, there's a lot of sort of what I'd call legal fiction uh, involved in the Constitution. The idea is that the Constitution is this document that we have all consented to, right? Uh, we, as the citizens of this country, sort of the idea is that we all got together and we decided this is the founding document that decides how the government runs, what our rights are, those kinds of things, but really more that it recognizes what rights we have, which is an important aspect of understanding the Constitution, those who were framing and writing the Constitution believed that when it came to rights, which is what we're going to deal with in this kind of Roe versus Wade and Dobbs uh, case that we've just recently had, is what are the rights of people, right? The people who framed the Constitution believed they were recognizing rights that were God-given, Okay, so we have sort of biblical law, and then under that, uh, we have something called natural law, which is whether or not you have the Bible, you can understand the natural law, which is which governs 
how people should behave, how they should treat each other, what their rights are, one person against another person or one person against the government. They tried to recognize those rights and then enumerate them or write them down, enshrine them into the Constitution, although they weren't trying to, to do every single possible uh, right that you might have, uh, but rather give an idea of these rights and so on. So the Constitution is is this document that we all sort of agreed to. Well, of course, you probably didn't agree to it. You very likely were born in the United States and the Constitution affected you with or without your consent. You don't have the ability when you're born and say, get five years old to like, do you want to opt in or opt out of the Constitution? That's not how it works. In fact, uh, everyone who is in this country is is governed by that Constitution. And none of us were around in 1787 when it was ratified. Uh, and even those who were around in 1787, we had all kinds of different groups of men and all kinds of different groups of women and all kinds of children. And the only group that actually ratified the Constitution was a very small group out of all those. And it was men who were white who owned property. OK, so half the population, women are out, children, you know, below a certain age, they were out. And any man that wasn't white was out. And any man that was white but didn't own property was out. So it really was a very small group of people that consented to be governed by the Constitution. Nevertheless, over time, that's changed. Amendments have been made to the Constitution to include everyone. We now have everyone gets to vote past a certain age. Obviously, small children don't. But, but basically, the Constitution applies to everyone. The ability to amend the Constitution as a country of citizens is possible and so on. So we consider it to be a document that we've all agreed to. Now, you've got to ask yourself a question when you ask what the court does in interpreting the Constitution. What are the limits of the court's ability to decide what the Constitution says? And this goes to an issue that you have to understand before you get into that, and that's the issue of jurisprudence. Jurisprudence just means philosophy of law. What is the philosophy that somebody has about the law and how it works and how does that affect the way that they read the Constitution? You're likely, if you've read a newspaper, or you probably don't read newspapers anymore, but online, uh, or if you've watched the news, you hear people talking about the conservatives on the court or the liberals on the court and that kind of thing. Some people, when they say that, are simply talking about which party the president who nominated that justice was part of. If they were Republican, they consider that justice to be conservative. And if they were Democrat, they consider that justice to be liberal. That was not always the case. In fact, some of the more liberal justices we've had have been appointed by Republican presidents. Um, and, and so you can't necessarily guarantee that. But these days with the court, it's pretty true that conservative justices, according to that definition, also are conservative in their jurisprudence and vice versa with liberal justices. Justices that were appointed by Democrats tend to be liberal in their jurisprudence. Now, what does that mean? Uh, it's basically a method of interpretation. Okay. And so once again, we kind of have to back up and say, okay, what are we talking about when we talk about interpretation? The Constitution is a bunch of words, right? It's a document. And so how do we interpret those words to understand what they mean and therefore how they affect the citizens of the United States? Well, you have to have a framework or a, a way of interpreting that text. A conservative way of interpreting a text is different than a liberal way of interpreting a text. Now, for you who are Christ followers who are watching this, you may understand this in terms of biblical interpretation. So when I look at the Bible... I use 
what I call a liberal, I'm sorry, a literal hermeneutic, a literal hermeneutic. And a hermeneutic, according to Google from Oxford Languages, the definition is concerning interpretation, especially of the Bible or literary texts, a method or theory of interpretation. So a hermeneutic is just your way of interpreting. Okay, so you can have a conservative hermeneutic, you could have a liberal hermeneutic, you can have in this case, what we would call a literal hermeneutic, meaning that what the text says is what it means. And of course, that's subject to different things. If the text is poetry, then it may mean something metaphorical. But if the text is not poetic and say it's historical, then it means exactly what it says. If it says George Washington went to this battle at this time, we assume that what it means is George Washington went to this battle at this time. If the law says no one is allowed to deprive a person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, what we think is that means no one is allowed to deprive anyone of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. That's a literal hermeneutic, okay? And so when we interpret the Bible, we take that literal hermeneutic and what the Bible says is what the Bible means. So what's going to happen if you have a literal hermeneutic is you're going to do something we call exegesis. Exegesis is letting the text speak what the text says. So the text says what the text says. We simply take that liberal, literal I'm mixing those words, literal hermeneutic. And we look at that and we go, this is what Jesus said. And it's clear what he said. And so that must be what he meant. That is different than the liberal, I am saying liberal this time, liberal hermeneutic, which uses a different form. And one of the things they sometimes do is called eisegesis instead of exegesis. Eisegesis is when you look at a text and you bring to the text your own ideas, okay? The actual definition here uh, is, let me find it here, the interpretation of a text, as of the Bible, as an example, by reading into it one's own ideas. So if I'm eisegeting, that means I come to the text with an idea of what I want it to say, and then, I've, and then I interpret the text according to that idea that I already have. You see people do this with the Bible all the time, uh, and you'll see them do it with the Constitution as well, uh, or any text. They're, they will say, what it's really saying is, and then they'll sort of give this idea that you can tell they brought to the text themselves, that's what they wanted it to say. And lo and behold, that's what it ends up saying through a certain number of backflips and and uh, changing the way things really, the way a certain word might mean this, now it means that, uh, creating ambiguities in the text in order to get out of it what they wanted to get out of it. And so when you have a literal hermeneutic, what happens is if you're intellectually honest, meaning that you're, you're being honest about the way that you think and about the way that you interpret, then it's not going to be that uncommon that what the text says is not what you wanted it to say. That at the end of the day, that text says something, and that's what it says, and you have to just recognize that's what it says, even though you'd prefer that it said something different, or your policy desire would be something different. An example of this is uh, a judge on the Supreme Court who takes a literal hermeneutic to the Constitution. Uh, he, he passed away not long ago, Antonin Scalia. He would often end up having to side with 
the policy desires of, say, the liberal side of the court. It wouldn't be what he wanted to happen policy-wise, but it was what the text of the Constitution demanded, and so he had to stay consistent with it. He couldn't change it because his hermeneutic, which was literal, says the text says what the text says, whether I like it or not. So if you have a hermeneutic that's literal, then it's whether I like it or not. If you have a hermeneutic that's liberal, that's where you get things like the idea of the living, breathing constitution. The idea that the constitution can change over time and that it sort of changes along with uh, the evolving standards of decency and morality that our society has. In other words, I can start interpreting the constitution to be consistent with what I would like to see policies be. But that's not the kind of document that the Constitution is. That's not the kind of document, frankly, any legal document is. The Constitution has within its framework a way to change it. Okay, It's called the amendment process. And so you can amend the Constitution. It's difficult to do, but it can be done so that if there is something about it that's inconsistent with what our society thinks is right, that the society, if there's enough people who believe that, can get together and make that change. There are people who don't want to go through that process, and so instead of going through the process of amending the Constitution, they just want the judges to declare that the Constitution now says something that it never said. You have to understand that about the way that people interpret the Constitution. So you have judges who are consistent and who, who apply a literal hermeneutic to the Constitution, and you have judges that are very willing to have the Constitution change or bend or even say things that it doesn't say at all in order to get out of it what they want to bring to it. Okay, So you have those who exegete, the Constitution, and you have those who eisegete the Constitution. You have the same thing with the Bible. You have what we call liberal biblical scholars, and the Bible can all of a sudden say things it doesn't say at all. And then you have your conservative biblical scholars who tend to want to interpret the text literally and understand it literally, whether or not it's convenient. Okay, A literal interpretation of Genesis 1 brings us to the idea that the world was created by God in seven days, six days and a day for rest. If you take a literal hermeneutic to that, that's what it says. And so if other people say, well, we're theorizing in science now that it was this or it was that or it was the other thing, you're stuck with a literal hermeneutic, whether you would like to be liked by the, the people who, who have that scientific view or whether you wouldn't like to be, you're stuck with it. The Bible says things about your money, about your sex life. The Bible says things about how you should treat your spouse. It says things about how you should treat your children. It says all kinds of things. You may or may not like the commands of the scripture. But if you have a literal hermeneutic, you, you are bound by them, whether you like it or not. But if you have a liberal or eisegetical hermeneutic, you can change all the ones you don't like to say what you want it to say. The extreme example of this with the Bible was uh, one of our uh, forefathers in America, Thomas Jefferson, who was known to just cut out sections of the Bible that he didn't like. So the Bible then only said the things that he liked and didn't say the things that he didn't like. Well, that's pretty eisegetical. <laughs> you're taking to the text, you're cutting out what you don't like, you're keeping in what you do like, and then you're interpreting what's left the way you want to. Well, with the Constitution, if we do that, what it leaves us with is an inability to know what it actually says from day to day or from justice to justice. And so we have this history of 
the Supreme Court sort of moving from uh, more liberal interpretations of the Constitution to more conservative, to more liberal, to more conservative. And whenever you have the more liberal uh, view of the Constitution, you can get any number of interpretations of the Constitution that don't make any sense for somebody who has a literal interpretation of the text and that don't give us anything solid to hold on to as citizens to know from day to day or from the court changing this way to that way what we're going to actually have. And so you've had something like that happen here in the Dobbs case, which just overturned the quote-unquote constitutional right to abortion. You have people going, wait a second, you said the Constitution said X, but now it says Y. And so that's, that's causing an upheaval in society. And what's happened is we've gone from a more liberal, as we'll, as we'll see, view of the Constitution giving out rights that weren't in the Constitution to a more conservative view that says those rights aren't there, they weren't there, and therefore we can't say the Constitution says this. So we're going to kind of get into that. But in order to do that, we've got to go back and we've got to kind of trace the history of how this all came down. What caused the court to go in the direction of creating a right to abortion in the first place? All right, let's look at the history. The case that was overturned, technically, was a case called Roe versus Wade. This was a case that was decided in 1973, and the court used a concept called substantive due process in order to uh, declare that there was a right to abortion in the protected by the Constitution. And at that time, the court actually tried to use several different amendments and said, well, this right kind of comes from this amendment and that amendment and so on. Um, but the idea is that there is a, a, there are a number of rights that exist that are not enumerated or written down in the Constitution, but are nevertheless protected by the Constitution. One of those rights they decided in 1973 was the right to abortion. And the way that they came to that was uh, through some reasoning that even liberal scholars or liberal interpretations of the, uh, interpreters of the Constitution have found to be uh, not great. Uh, anywhere from really bad law to not great law. Even people like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was definitely a liberal justice, had a liberal way of interpreting the Constitution. Even she thought that the court went too far, that the case was not well written, not well decided, and it really wasn't. What basically happened was the court came up with a framework. Uh, this isn't particularly important, but just so you understand where there were three trimesters in a pregnancy, and during that first trimester, basically, you couldn't make any laws restricting abortion. During the second trimester, you could make certain laws that restricted abortion. In the third trimester, you could make any law you wanted restricting abortion. Okay, that was based on substantive due process. Later, in 1992, the court took this issue up again. And it looked at that time like the court might possibly overturn Roe versus Wade, but a justice named Anthony Kennedy, who's no longer on the court, uh, decided that he was going to vote with the uh, liberal side and they decided to keep abortion, but they changed the whole way they did it. Again, substantive due process. And this time what they said was, there's this viability standard. In other words, there's a point at which a child can live outside of the womb. And prior to the point, at the time, I think it was about 20, 
six weeks and it's come down to 24, 23 weeks. You know, science, of course, is changing how long uh, or how early in a pregnancy a child can live outside the womb. Uh, but, it, you know, the, basically at that point is where you can make laws restricting abortion. But prior to that point, you cannot put what the court called an undue burden on a woman's right to an abortion. And so then there were all kinds of laws about what is an undue burden, right? The viability standard, there's two big questions. When is viability and what is an undue burden? And so once again, even though they recognized that Roe wasn't really a great decision, they thought of it as, well, it is a decision, it's precedent. In other words, it happened and it's been existing at that time, you know, 20 years or so it had existed. And so we ought to keep it by a, a, something we called stare decisis, which just means when there's been a precedent laid down by the court, we should keep that precedent going. And so then they found this kind of new way of doing it, this new standard of doing it. Again, finding substantive due process, uh, finding the idea that this is a right that just sort of exists in the Constitution, even though it's not enumerated. And, and so they kept it. Then you had a series of other cases that have used that same uh, reasoning, the substantive due process reasoning. One of them was in 2003, a case called Lawrence v. Texas, where uh, criminal statutes against sodomy, uh, same-sex sexual relations between men, uh, there were criminal statutes that said you can't do that, and they overruled that and said, look, there's this right to privacy that exists. This is the same kind of right that they used for abortion. You know, it's a substantive due process right, and 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 so therefore laws that outlaw sodomy are no longer, you know, are, are no longer valid constitutionally. You have a right to uh, homosexual sodomy. Uh, then, of course, the case that you're probably familiar with, or Obergefell versus Hodges from 2015, that found a right to same-sex marriage, used a very similar process in substantive due process to find a right to same-sex marriage. Okay, so you have all these cases uh, that have, there, there are other cases as well. Griswold v. Connecticut is one. There's a number of cases that have found rights in the Constitution that were never in the Constitution based on substantive due process. So that brings us to Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. That's the case that just came out uh, this last Friday uh, in June 24th. I don't remember what the date was. And found that there is not a right to abortion in the Constitution. And here's, here's how the court reasoned. And it's a very long opinion uh, with, uh, you know, two different concurrences that, that meaning people who agreed with the opinion but wanted to say some extra stuff and then a dissent. So I think the whole thing together, 223 pages, something like that. It's long. There's a lot going on there. And I haven't read the entire opinion. I've read what I needed to read to, to understand uh, what we're talking about today. But essentially what the court, what the majority of the court found was that there is not an enumerated right to abortion in the Constitution, which everyone agrees to and knows. In other words, there is no amendment to the Constitution that says you, uh, every person who's pregnant has a right to abortion. That's just not there. And so then they said, well, okay. Should we then have it as a substantive due process right? And traditionally, substantive due process rights were supposed to be rights that were not enumerated, but they were so entrenched in the history and traditions of our country that it made sense that they sort of flowed from 
the constitution, the constitutional rights that were there and were recognized as sort of fundamental rights that we had. And so they did an analysis. Was this right? Part of the history and tradition of the United States. They walked through that and found that the right to abortion was definitely not uh, rooted in the history and tradition of our country as a right that people had. Therefore, it was not something that the founders or anyone else would have thought was a fundamental right, that essentially the court in Roe versus Wade came up with it out of whole cloth. So then the other issue was, since it was never properly a right, the question is, well, should we keep it anyway because of stare decisis? Should we keep it anyway because we've had this precedent now for like 50 years that says women have a constitutional right to abortion? And the judges walked through that analysis and found no. And, and by the way, just so you know, all of these justices have have voted at different times in their careers on different cases to overrule precedent, to overrule stare decisis and find that a new rule should be there or an old rule shouldn't be there anymore. For instance, the liberal justices all voted for Obergefell versus Hodges, which found a right to same-sex marriage, which overruled prior precedent that said there was no such right, okay? Um, we have had many different uh, times in this country where we have found that the court was wrong, and regardless of how much time had passed or those types of things, we've overruled it. Brown versus Board of Education overruled a case called Plessy versus Ferguson. Plessy ver versus Ferguson said, hey, we have as long as we have separate but equal, we can keep people of different colors, Apart, white people and black people away from each other. They don't have to go to school together. We don't have to give them the same, uh, the same education and so on. That was overruled by Brown versus Board of Education, as well it should have been. Completely unconstitutional, Plessy versus Ferguson. But just because it had already been there does not mean the court should have kept it. The same they reason in this case, you overrule bad law. And the idea that there's a right to abortion in the Constitution is bad law. So that's, that was the way they made the decision. They essentially said, it's not enumerated, therefore it's not written down, and we don't find any history or tradition of this law existing, and we don't think that the, the fact that the right, quote-unquote, has existed for 50 years means that we should just keep having it exist even though it's not in the Constitution. One of the reasons is, one of the things you will look at in that case is reliance. How much are people relying on this? And frankly, nobody could have had a reliance interest in abortion since it has been an up in the air type of right all 50 years that it's existed. It's always been the kind of thing where we didn't know whether the court would keep it or not keep it. And everyone going forward can decide whether to get pregnant or not based on this type of a law. They're not, they're not making decisions in reliance in terms of their in terms of uh, uh, having sexual relations that could cause you to become pregnant based on this case. And therefore, reliance interest is not uh, a proper reason to adhere to the precedent. The precedent should be overruled. So they did that. Okay, that's what the court did. The dissent doesn't like that. I don't think that they have a good argument for why it's rooted in history and tradition. They really don't. And clearly it's not enumerated. So basically they would just have to argue, hey, we have this precedent. People have relied on it. Uh, you know, things like that. Isogetical type things. You know, people, we, we should just generally have this. It seems like a good thing to do, that kind of thing. But it's not, there is not a good argument from a substantive due process standpoint. One justice, Justice Clarence Thompson, 
Thomas basically said, we shouldn't have substantive due process at all. We should not be creating all these rights out of something that we've made up called substantive due process. Just for your information, I don't want to get too complicated here. Due process generally has to do with process. In other words, you cannot, uh, for instance, put somebody in prison without giving them a right to have a hearing. Right? You have to give them notice of the issue, and then you have to give them hearing a hearing before a judge before you can put them in prison. That's a process. Substantive process is not a real thing. Substance has to do with the law itself, right? You are not allowed to murder is a substantive law. When you get arrested for murder, you have to have a grand jury and you have a right to counsel and you have the right to have a trial before your peers. Those are substance. I mean, I'm sorry. Those are process. Due process. Substance is about the kind of laws we make. Process is about the process we go through in enforcing those laws. And so substantive due process doesn't really make sense to begin with. Thomas mentions that, and a lot of people kind of have freaked out about that because they think, well, if we get rid of substantive due process, then, of course, the ruling on same-sex marriage, the ruling on homosexual sodomy, these kinds of rulings would go away. Just to be practical with you, I think that the chances of that are zero. I think that uh, the ship has sailed on those issues, even though obviously those are not the right to homosexual sodomy or the right to same-sex, quote-unquote, marriage are not in the Constitution. And they are certainly not rooted in the history and traditions of our country. In fact, they were illegal at all times and all places within our tradition for hundreds of years until they just all of a sudden were found to be constitutional rights. So um, they don't stand on any good constitutional ground. The reason I don't think they'll be overruled is because I don't think the court is interested in getting involved in those cases. So I don't think they're going to take cases where they would overrule those, those particular things. Now, I want to uh, talk about how I think the case should have been decided. Because while the result of saying there's no right to abortion in the Constitution is correct, there is no right to abortion, practically all that means is that the states get to make their laws about abortion, meaning that some states will outlaw abortion and some states will continue, like the state I'm sitting in now, Washington, continue to have very robust uh, rights to abortion. In other words, there will be lots and lots and lots and lots of abortions still, and the states where the most people live tend to be more liberal politically, big L liberal uh, states, more democratic states, which tend to favor abortion, meaning that the population centers of our country are still going to have very ready access to abortion, maybe even more than they had before as a reaction to this, as where the states that would outlaw it tend to be smaller states with less people. And while I do believe that the court's decision here will end up practically saving the lives of babies, it is not the type of thing that will cause uh, the genocide of abortion to end in this country. Abortion will continue to, to occur. It will continue to occur a lot. So you're, as a citizen, if you would like to see abortion go away, and I hope you would, your job will be to sort of get your fellow citizens together within your state to try to get your state to pass laws to make the, the practice of killing infants in the womb illegal. Uh, but right now, as we stand, where most people in the country are, abortion is still going to be legal. It's going to continue to be legal. What I believe the court should have done was found that a child in the womb is a person. And when I say a person, I mean a person as the Constitution defines the word person. 
What we found is, is that science has spoken very clearly on this issue. Science, science, scientists, not liberals, not conservatives, just doing science have now discovered with, with no equivocation. In other words, this is, this is just a done deal that at conception, you have a separate human life. You have a person, a separate human life at the moment of conception. The way that people who want abortion to continue to exist have dealt with that scientific discovery is to try to make a line between what a person is and what a person is not. It's called personhood. We have a long history in the world and in this country of calling certain people persons and other people who we don't want to recognize as persons, not persons. So if you're familiar with the, uh, with the history of racism in this country or the history of sexism in this country, uh, what you'll understand is that we have in the past wrongfully said that certain people are persons and certain people aren't. And in this case, that's what advocates of abortion want to do. They want to say this human being, the science says, is a human being. Is the, is the offspring of a mother and a father. It's a human being from the second that conception happens. That In that moment, that spark of life happens. You have a separate human being with separate DNA. This is a human being. Where they say, well, okay, it's a human being, but it's not a person. And we're going to define personhood. Again, eisegesis is going to happen here. We're going to define personhood to be whatever allows us to continue to have abortion. So personhood is either, depends on the state you're in, either it's not a person until the child is outside of the mother's body or it's not a person until viability or it's not a person until X number of weeks, none of which have any basis in science. Okay. When you start doing that kind of personhood analysis, what happens is you have to start defining what a person is. People will be like, well, the, the person has to be aware or the person has to, you know, be a certain, uh, have a certain amount of, of senses or a person has to, and what happens is you end up capturing in those, Everyone who has uh, a mental disorder or anyone who's in a coma or anyone who's asleep, frankly, isn't aware and things like that. So now all of a sudden you're a person here and not a person there. It makes no sense. And the reason it makes no sense is because you're using the, the word personhood to try to continue to have the ability to murder infants, period. That's the fact. It is an infant. At the point of conception, you have a human being. You have an infant by design, the fact that we want to use the word fetus to refer to an, to the stage of life where you're still in the womb is no different than the fact that we use the word uh, toddler to refer to a child that's two to three years old or preteen or teenager or adult or elderly or whatever. It, those are just words that describe the stage of life that you're in. They have nothing to do with whether you're a person. So how should the court have decided this case? What the court should have ought to have done, both under the natural law, the biblical law and common sense and reason is say, an infant at the point of conception is a person, and therefore they have the right to life, liberty, and property. And those things can't be taken away from them without due process of law. In other words, they have the same right to life that every other human being that's outside of the womb has because they are just a human being that's inside a womb. The Fifth Amendment of the United States says no person shall. It says a number of things, but one of them is no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. The 14th Amendment then says, no, nor shall any state, because the 5th Amendment applied to the federal government, and the 14th Amendment applied to all the states, and now they both apply to all the states, but nor shall any state deprive any person of life, 
That's the important part. Liberty or property without due process of law. You cannot kill someone except with due process of law. In other words, in, in our case, the only people who can be killed are people who have committed certain kinds of murders, or I believe we still have the death penalty in cases of treason. You have to go through the process of proving that before you can kill somebody. You can't deprive somebody of liberty, in other words, the right not to be in jail, without due process of law. And that would apply equally to an infant in the womb as it would to an infant outside the womb. That is what the court should have found, which would have made abortion illegal in all states and territories at all times. It would have given the constitutional protections that we give to persons, which is what an infant is, at the point of conception. The court failed to do this. The court did not do this. Instead, the court took a half measure and made the decision based on substantive due process and whether or not the right to abortion met that standard instead of simply saying what the science says, we have a person and therefore we cannot take the life of this person. By the way, if you did use that standard, you would still have the right to abortion in certain cases. For instance, a tubal pregnancy where the infant, the, the child, is not has not gotten in the uterus, but rather is in one of the tubes, uh, I, I guess the fallopian tubes, and that child will end up killing the mother and the child. There's, there's no way either one of them will live if that pregnancy goes forward because it's, it's, you know, because of the sinfulness of the world and the fallenness of the world. Sometimes things like that happen, in which case you would have a right to abortion because it would be a self-defense right, which we consider to be a right that people have, the right to self-defense, um, even if the defense is against your own infant in this case. Um, so you would still have those hard cases would still be taken care of, but some of the hard cases like rape and incest wouldn't. And the reason they wouldn't is because we don't consider the fact that one crime was committed, be that rape or incest, to be a reason why another crime should be committed, that is the murder of an infant. And so while it's difficult, there are lots of difficult things that we have to do in the fallen world. And I understand that's easy for me to say as a man who's not, who can't get pregnant and is unlikely to be in this situation. Nevertheless, my hermeneutic of the constitution and my hermeneutic of the scripture requires me to say that there are going to be hard cases where that comes into play. But remember, you're talking about such a small percentage of the cases of abortion in this country, that it, it's minuscule. It's, it's, it's not meaningless to the argument, but it's so minuscule. Most abortions are not taking place for those reasons. Most abortions are taking place because the pregnancy, this child that's in the, in the womb, is inconvenient for one or both of the parents. That's why. It's inconvenient. And we are killing persons, babies, through abortion because it's not a convenient time or a convenient circumstance in the life of this woman or this couple or whatever to have a child. And using death to a child as a method of birth control for convenience is a great evil. It is a great evil. Now, one of the things that I want you to think about, two things. If you're a person who is has traditionally been pro-choice, if you're a person who generally thinks that uh, the right to abortion is a right that women should have, let me tell you a couple things. One, I have immense empathy for the plight of women in the world and in this country and the way that women have been treated and the way that they have been depersoned in many, many ways. And I believe that we should do everything that we can 
to have equality among the sexes. That women should, I'm a feminist in the sense that I believe that women and men are equal, both made in the image and likeness of God, and that they should have equal rights, that they should be treated with equal dignity and equal respect. And anything that is happening now that takes away that equal dignity and respect, we should be working to get rid of. However, I believe that half of the infants that are killed in the womb are women, are females. And so it is affecting little girls as much as it's affecting little boys. And I recognize that women bear the burden of pregnancy in a way that men don't. They also have the benefits of pregnancy in a way that men don't. Men will never experience the closeness that a mother has with a child who is growing in her womb. Uh, Nevertheless, I do have empathy for that. I want you to understand that because we see people as made in the image and likeness of God, and because we know without a doubt now, science has proven this, that a child, a human being, one made in God's image and likeness is created at the moment of conception. We believe that life should be protected. We are not against women. In fact, uh, crisis pregnancy centers that have existed for a long time and continue to exist. We are very much in support of those uh, places because what they do is they provide for women who are dealing with pregnancy and raising young children and give them diapers and clothes and classes and, and whatever we can do. Not only that, there are, I don't even know how many people who would love to adopt a child. And so while the pregnancy is the pregnancy, after the pregnancy, if you are not in a position where you can care for a child, there are so many good, loving families who are willing to take a child. There are so many options other than killing a human being. And so we're very serious about it, but we're not judgmental. If you've had an abortion in the past, we're not sitting here looking at you like you're, like you're an evil person. What's happened is we've been deceived. We've been deceived by those who do not care about life, by those who have not understood life into believing that abortion was, was a medical procedure. People use the term reproductive health care, and I am, I'm just sickened by that term. There's nothing health care about killing a child. That's not health care. It's murder. It's what it is. But people have been told that it's reproductive health care, and so they've made decisions. And let me just tell you, the Lord will forgive all of that. If you call on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. If you confess your sins, as we're told in 1 John 1, 9, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You do not need to live in shame or fear or regret or any of those things as to us. And you are welcome at Acts Church. I myself have had my own issues in this area. Many, many people have had their issues in this area. God offers forgiveness. But we also ask that you are honest with yourself about this issue, that you are honest with yourself about the truth related to this issue, regardless of what the tweets and the protesters and the news organizations and whoever are telling you, you know in your heart You know in your heart that it's wrong to kill a child. And a child in the womb is a child. You cannot define them out of existence. Now, for those of you who are Christ followers, there are 
ways that you can use this time in history to evangelize to your friends, to your neighbors, to your children, your sons, your daughters, your aunts, your uncles, your cousins, your coworkers, your, your whoever. There are ways you can do that. And, and one of the ways you want to do that is you have to know what you're talking about. That's why we just spent the last 50 minutes or so talking about this case, how it came about, what the Supreme Court does, how you interpret the document and so on, so that you can have that discussion so that you can show that you're capable of understanding these issues at a more complex level so that the, that the conversation doesn't have to be an argument where you're yelling. You can walk through those things. You can, you can figure out how that person would look at the Constitution, how they would answer the question of, well, it's not in the Constitution. So when you say that you have a right to it, what you're saying is that the court, the Supreme Court at some point said there was a right to it, but if they were wrong, then shouldn't that right be overturned? You can have that conversation with them. You can see whether they like to eisegete or exegete. If they like to eisegete, then what they need to understand is that that in that way lies madness because that means the court can just create or take away rights whenever they want because they just bring their own ideas into the document. No one is safe from a court that wants to liberally interpret the Constitution because it can go away you don't like it just as quickly as it can go away you do like it. The only way that we can have something we can depend on is if we literally interpret that Constitution. If changes need to be made, then you need to go through the amendment process and make those changes. You can have that conversation, but then you can just ask questions like, what is life? What is life? A person has to answer that question. What does their own life mean? And then you can share as a Christ follower what we understand life to be. It's a gift from God. You are made in his image and likeness. Yes, we live in a fallen world, but there are so many good things, love and peace and joy and justice. So many good things that we that we live and enjoy and work for, that the things that you do and the things that you are as a human being are so valuable and that life is valuable. The reason we don't want infants in the womb being killed is because we believe they're image bearers of God, just as you are, just as the person you're going to be talking to is, and you need to share that with them. Ask them, why are you valuable? Why are the people that you love valuable? What makes them valuable? Is there anything beyond themselves or own thoughts that make them valuable? And the only answer that we can come to is that God gives them value. Because if you believe that there is no God, if you believe that naturalism is true, that there's nothing out there other than just what's happening, right? Just sort of the scientific view of the world where you know people are born, they die, they survive, they don't survive, then of course your life doesn't have any value. And we know in our hearts that that's not true. Just as we know in our hearts that it's wrong to kill a baby. And if the child in a womb is a baby, we know it's wrong to kill that baby. We also know that our own lives mean something that we're valuable. And you need to ask people, what about the things that you believe gives you a reason to believe that you are valuable? Because you know in your heart that you are, but what about the things that you believe gives you a reason to believe that you're valuable? We have that reason as Christ followers. God has told us clearly that we are made in his image and likeness, that we are his image bearers, that he has a plan for us, that he loves us, that Jesus Christ literally came and died for us. God's son, God himself died for us because you're that valuable. We have a set of beliefs that answers that question. And so when we're talking about life in the womb, we're talking about life. What makes life valuable? Ask those questions. If 
you don't have an answer to those questions, then you don't have an answer to why sexism is wrong or racism is wrong or ageism, that old people, uh, quality of lifeism. Uh, there are people in the world, there are people in other countries, there are people in this country who think that if a person has a certain quality of life, which is judged based on what they think, if it's low enough that we should be able to kill them. Do you believe that? Do people believe that? The people you're talking to? And if they don't, why not? What makes you valuable? What makes you valuable? What do you believe in love? Do you believe in justice, in peace, in joy, in faith? What do your beliefs say about the reality of those things? And if they don't have an answer for them, you can lead them to the fact that God is the answer, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for our sins, that he is the answer for that, that we, that we have an explanation that makes sense of the things that are already in your heart. And that because of that, we are responsible to God. And the reason that we are pro-life, all of life, is because of God. It's because of what God has told us about who we are. It's because of what God has told us about being made in his image and likeness. If you can bring that understanding, that reality to people, then they can look at Jesus Christ. Then they can look at our God and they can decide what's true. Because what the world is telling them is that there's these things like love and joy and whatever, but then no basis for any of them. There's no, in a naturalistic view, in a view that doesn't have God, or in a view that worships a God, that there's no evidence exists, like, like the nature God or something. There is no value for you, for your children, for your loved ones, for your spouse. There's no value for anyone. The only, the only belief system or set of beliefs that provides proper value, the kind that we understand in our hearts, is the Christian worldview. That's the only place where you can ground the kind of value that we actually believe in. And most of us actually do understand those things at a deep level. And so use this opportunity where people are talking about this issue to gently and empathetically have these conversations. Do not see people who disagree with you as enemies to be fought with. Don't see that. Rather, see them as image bearers of God who need the gospel and preach the gospel. I'm glad that the Supreme Court has said that there's no right to an abortion in the Constitution. That is true. I'm sad that the Supreme Court did not say that infants are persons who have the right to life. But we continue to move forward. We continue to bring the truth. We continue to change hearts and minds. At some point, I would love to see us have the ability to get enough people together to make an amendment to the Constitution that defines personhood properly, that an infant in the womb would have personhood and constitutional protection. Until then, we pray for mothers who are struggling. We pray for the young woman who gets pregnant who didn't intend to. We pray that the right choice would be made both for her and for the child, the human being that bears the image and likeness of God, that they would be safe, that they would know Jesus, that they would be protected spiritually and physically. Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor and use this as an opportunity to show that love. Do not use this as an opportunity to get into unnecessary fights and arguments and quarrels in order to protect your political view of the world. Use this as an opportunity to show love. Show love. We've had enough of people seeing Christians as those who don't show love. Use this as an opportunity to show love, to show empathy, and to preach the truth in a way that helps win souls. 
Let's pray. Father, thank you for babies. Thank you for mothers. Thank you for women. Lord, I pray that those who are hurting and who feel like uh, they had a right that was recognized, that was taken away, and that that is a devaluing of them would understand that that's not what's happened at all. That's why one of the people who voted for this was a woman, because she understands. And I pray that you would help them to understand that they are made in your image and likeness and that so are their children. God, we pray that you would give us opportunities to speak the truth in love, to give a reason, to just always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in us, Lord, as you tell us in the scripture. Help us to love our neighbor as ourself. Help us to work out these issues in our minds so that we understand them, so that we can speak clearly, lovingly, and effectively. God, we love you. We thank you for the children. We thank you for the women, the mothers, the men, the husbands. Lord, we pray for people. We pray for this country. We pray that you would use this as an opportunity to show your truth. In your name, amen.